0: This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility, Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, thanks for listening. Law enforcement officers across agencies from small towns to sprawling rural areas to municipal cities and state and federal service all have pretty similar traits. They're smart, capable problem solvers with a plan. Anyone who says they are flying by the seat of their pants probably does not anticipate being in the business for long. Of course, they have to be flexible and adaptable for different situations, but they are likely to have a good foundation to fall back on. Dan Metty, retired from the Drug Enforcement Administration after serving 21 years as a special agent, joins us today, and prior to joining the DEA, Dan was a patrol agent with the U.S. Border Patrol in San Diego and an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps, during which time he participated in operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. His last assignment was as a SA instructor curriculum developer at the Drug Enforcement Administration Academy in Quantico, Virginia, where the focus of his instruction to basic agent trainees was on self-awareness adaptation, resiliency, critical thinking, problem-solving, and decision-making abilities and models. He's also the DEA's nationwide field training agent coordinator, wherein he instructed on the power of influence and everyday leadership to experienced agents responsible for mentoring, developing, and evaluating newly minted special agents. Hey, welcome to Policing Matters, Agent Daniel Medi.
1: Thanks, Jim. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to be with you. I'm a longtime listener of the program and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've got great experience with the DEA. And I'll tell you, my my stint at the FBI Academy, uh, the DEA agents were like in a different line of training running around in their black BDUs and and black shirts. And uh, what was their instruction to just sort of funnel out everybody else at the Academy when when they were still at the sharing the Quantico site?
1: You know, not so much. I would say it was, it was, uh, there were some people that we did weed out, but it wasn't really prim- primarily, that wasn't the focus of it. It was really to, you know, make sure that they were going to have a successful transition to, uh, to a field environment. And I, I know that you went through the National Academy and so did my father. When I was 13 years old, I went to Quantico to watch his graduation from that environment and I remember he was telling me oh I had to study all the time during the weekends and then when I went through the DEA academy myself and then when I was an instructor I said come on dad I saw what you guys were doing compared to the DEA agents down there but it was really um we tried to change it to a teach coach and mentor type situation as opposed to a paramilitary type operation.
0: So what were your you, you created the DEA leadership model. What were your goals, your primary goals? What, what did you want to get across to those guys?
1: Yeah. So in, in 2015, I was given a mandate for to change the field training agent program, which had begun in 1995, a year before I came on with DEA. And I was my mandate was fix it. And what I really wanted to do was to make it accountable. I wanted to make it meaningful. I wanted to make it a, a realistic evaluation of what DEA calls a probationary agent. So was the PA really getting it or not getting it once they left the academy and went to the field environment? And I also wanted to make it a flexible program representative of knowing that each DEA division or 21 in the country, including training, is its own little fiefdom. So you may or may not have the opportunity to do something there. Uh, Stepping back for a moment, when I got the original program to look at when it started in 95, it was what some people call this Leichhardt type system. So a card system is like a a check in the box. So when a new agent left the academy, they were assigned a senior agent for four months. And sometime during that 16 weeks, they had to get an acceptable in each category. There were 13 performance and knowledge categories. But the, the problem was there was like no narrative. There was no realistic evaluation of, hey, is somebody really getting this or are they not getting it? So For me, it was really to make it accountable, not just for the field training agent, but also for the probationary agent and and to make it more in line with problem-based learning, adult learning theory, where the new person was going to take responsibility for their own learning per se. Um, As a former Marine officer, one, one of my guiding principles has always been accountability. And I was really fortunate when I was there at training, we had an administrator who came in in my career, a gentleman named Chuck Rosenberg. And Mr. Rosenberg said, I want DEA to have some core values. My group was part of actually writing those core values that exist today on the website. You can see them. And I wrote the accountability one. And what it states is accountability to ourselves, to our agency, and to those that we serve. So I brought in nationwide from all over all the divisions, brought in 30 field training agents at a time for four days to train them on how to, how to be a mentor, how to, how to lead. For some of them, this is their first leadership experience. For some of them, they were, unfortunately there were a lot of them there that had just been told, look, you have to go to Quantico now and and learn how to be a field training agent. And I said, here's your opportunity to use obstacle is the way, you know, don't, don't look at the new agents as, as a problem is, I've got all these cases to handle. I have to go to court. I'm prepping for trial. Here's your opportunity to to really guide somebody. And I used to, I don't know if you can see this. I'm putting like my hands up as an arrow for each direction. I said, leadership is really boils down to influence and inspiration. You know, so I said, here's your opportunity. You can send a new agent down the right path. You can show them how to do things right. Teach, coach, mentor, show them not to cut corners, have a good attitude, be a great teammate out there An effective member of, of the DEA or if you're one of the types of persons that cuts corners or has a bad attitude, that is going to affect them without a doubt. And one saying I always had, and I was teaching there was during the leadership block, what you say and what you don't say and what you do and what you don't do is going to have a tremendous effect on somebody, a brand new agent or officer, you know, as lo- local law enforcement calls it field training officers, you know, whether you realize that or not I if I can give a quick example of that, uh, because it was 23 years before I really realized the impact of, that I had on one of my young Marines. Um, when I first got to, I was assigned to Hawaii right after I left the infantry officer course in Quantico in 1990. And so here I am thinking, yeah, I'm going to be surfing in Hawaii, having a great time. Platoon commander, I'll have 45 Marines under my care, but I'll also be in Hawaii and I'll, I'll be able to enjoy myself out there. Well, I got to Hawaii a week after Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. Um, a week after that, I met my platoon, and two weeks later, I'm in the Persian Gulf, which for what turned out to be thirteen or almost 13 months. And during that time, I, each a rifle platoon is led by a, a lieutenant like myself, and then you have three non-commissioned officers that lead each squad. And I had a a sergeant, and I'm sure he won't mind me using his name here, Sergeant George Sanchez, who was going through, he had a rough period in this particular point in his career. He talked to me about it. He was worried about something. And I said something to the effect of, don't worry, I've got your back. I'm the one who writes your fitness report. You're an outstanding Marine. You're an outstanding leader. And you will be getting an outstanding fitness report. Don't worry about it. I didn't think twice about that until 2016. I get, George tracks me down through social media and we have a phone conversation. He's like, hey, sir, you know, I w- would like you to be in my retirement ceremony in a few, in a few weeks um, as a Sergeant Major, um, the highest enlisted rank. And, you know, analogous to an officer making it to the general officer ranks. And I said, I'd, I'd be honored to be there. You know, that's, that's terrific. And it just so happened he was in Quantico. So I, I went to the retirement ceremony and George had me stand up. I, w- I was shocked. I had no idea this was coming. And he's called me out. And he said, you know, Lieutenant Mady at the time kept his word to me and it made a big difference in my career. And I tell you, Jim, I had zero idea that that had had any impact on him.
0: You know, you know we've talked about it on the show time and time again. I just talked to, um, the head of the FTO, the national FTO um, and uh, Dan green said exactly what you just said. You know, we mentor and we model and sometimes we forget what we're saying or doing only to be reminded, you know, years down the road by people who say, I remember the time you said, or you did, or I watched you. And, you know, that is so rewarding. So that's, that's a great, that's a great uh, story and experience that you 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 got firsthand.
1: Yeah, and I, I really, and I, I, it was only one class because this took place about six months before I retired. And I, I taught a leadership class the day before I retired. So I, they were the one class I got to show that example to. But I, one thing I told all the classes that, you know, that was a Marine Corps leadership principle that know your Marines and look out for their welfare. And I said, one thing I tried to change with the field training agent program to make it teach, coach, mentor, and to have a narrative system to get rid of those check in the box and have a real, coaching and training report, I developed an initial training and learning profile that the probationary agent would take that to the field as soon as he or she, most agents had to move from wherever they were hired mm. and sit down with your field training agent and, and go, go over the sheet together, you know, for, so both are, you know, learning about one another and that the field training agent gets a, a sense of what's going on in your life. You know, it's incredibly stressful to move across. Across the country, you know, I had I moved from San Diego to Eagle Pass, Texas. That was a big change. You know, some people have to move their families. Um, you know, and I just tell the field training agents, this is part of the time where you're going to sit down with your trainee and say, "Hey, look what what did you excel at at the academy? What were you really good at? Or more importantly, what do you think that you need more development with?" Because you know, it's one thing to go through the academy and maybe they weren't the team leader on a field training exercise, and you know, they got through the academy, but Once they get out to the field, I'm telling probationary agents, you have to let people know, you know, what you really weren't good at, because at a minimum, if you're in the real world now, you know, with the consequences, you could at a minimum embarrass yourself. But more importantly, you get somebody hurt out there, you know, yourself, one of your teammates, the public, someone we're trying to to arrest. So I I also wanted the, the new agents to take responsibility for journaling. To write these things down and do an own, their own self-evaluation and say, "Look, I this is something I, I don't know yet, and this is how I intend to, to learn about it." And that, that's really what a lot of problem-based learning is trying to get at: is, is having somebody take responsibility for their own type of learning.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I've looked over the concepts that you teach, the OODA loop. You know. You know, uh, observe, orient, decide and act uh, training in law enforcement is often about continuing reinforcement of motor skills like defensive tactics or maybe firearms training, uh, building entries and other physical skills through repetition. When you're trying to teach these other leadership concepts, sometimes they're a little bit er- esoteric, Um how do they, how do you keep them in the mind of the students? I mean, do you go back over their time in the academy and uh, do you do problem solving skills, exercises? How, how do you reinforce the, the sort of concepts rather than the physical?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And i be frank with you. There was, there was an uphill battle when we were developing this thinking for special agents block and it was seven hours of instruction classroom and also real world problem solving a lot of case studies Uh, i also took them out in the leadership reaction course because that was something i went through first in 1986 and made a big impression on me but a lot of it and it's funny i re-listened to a lot of the recordings i made in my teachings back there when i was teaching about adaptation interpersonal adaptation critical thinking decision making and problem solving and i always had to make it relevant to the students and and some people at the Academy were like, Hey, they only need to learn how to shoot, do surveillance, write reports. And I was saying, look, you know, they're everyday problem solvers. They're going to, they're going to be using that thinking muscle memory, you know, probably 90 to 95% of the time. And some students it resonated with, and, and some it didn't. Um, it, it's funny that later on I would get one particular student, send me a, a card and he said, you know, I really didn't get it at the time, but the longer I've been on the job, I, I understand what you were, you were getting across all these concepts. And at the end of the day, we didn't want them to make them esoteric. We wanted to make them practical and say, look, at the end, all these things are to make you a better problem solver. It's to reduce errors. One thing we really harped on was avoiding unintended consequences. So being a better communicator. Um, everything I, I feel in law enforcement, a lot of issues are around communication. And I, I would tell the students, look, communication is persuasion. It's negotiation. And I sit there and tell them, as a brand new agent, right, you're not going to be a a supervisor out of the gate. Or a a law enforcement officer that leaves an academy is not going to be a supervisor outside the gate or have that positional leadership on their collar here. But they're going to be that person on the scene. You're going to be an everyday leader of your cases. And you're going to have to collaborate and communicate. And, for example, the new DEA agent, you want to open up a case, Okay, you've learned all these techniques, you've learned all the paperwork, you're debriefing informants, and then you go out there and you tell your boss, look, boss, I'd, I'd like to open up a case on this particular person. And your boss says, well, you know, that's fantastic, but I've got eight other people in the group who all have four and five cases, so why is that case so important? You know, why, why do you, know, you have to articulate that. So that, that's part of getting them to use this th- what we call thinking muscle memory. Uh, as important it is to do this, you know, the draw from the holster, and and work on all those incredibly high risk, but low probability events. We also wanted to show them how they're going to have to adapt, you know, mental adaptation. Whether you're a new DEA agent or you're a state trooper or a a, be, a cop on the beat, you know, things are going to change constantly. It's never change. You know, you go into it with one, uh, you through one lens, and you think something's going to happen, and then the scenario changes on you. Com- completely. Interpersonal adaptability. That, to me, that's another large key of of getting this across and not making it esoteric was to tell the students, you know, you're going to have to interact with, you know, informants Um, or potential witnesses for law enforcement officers on the street. I interviewed, when I was in Puerto Rico for three years, I interviewed three men who had committed murders were in prison and would probably never leave prison. Um, Each one of them didn't you know? Didn't try to hide the fact of all the terrible things that they did, and these are people I would, outside of the DEA job, I would never have anything to do with. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at a videotape of us conversing, you know, you would you think it was a very friendly conversation, right? You had to adapt and and interact and have interpersonal relations. Same thing with dealing, with, for example, with attorneys. Um, you know, you can't go into a United States Assistant U.S. Attorney or a district attorney at the local level and say, oh, I've got a great case. No, they don't want to hear that. They don't want their time wasted. They're incredibly busy people. They want to know, why do you have a good case? You have to be able to ar- articulate those things. Um, the, the big one, that the real heavy lift was the critical thinking. Um, you know, and I, again, I ran into this with some of the students. I ran into this with some of the staff that said, hey, we went through it, you know, they should be in the brace position all the time. What are you talking about? Critical thinking and decision-making problem solving. You know, critical thinking is just basically boiling down to giving them tools in their toolbox to have a better solution. Um, one thing I, I was trying to bring home to the new students and also showing the FDAs, this is how it, we were dealing or teaching the new students, was informant handling or, or witness handling. Uh, assessing validity, that, that's a huge component of critical thinking, mm. you know, and all that in the law enforcement context, that's just boiling down to, how does somebody know their information? You know, what, it, what's the basis of their information? And why, why are they telling you the information, their motivation, you know, and getting into, you know, perverse motivations. we had people who were trying to cooperate with us, to hurt us. And we had case studies on that, for example, what happened to some CIA case officers in Afghanistan, that incident that was highlighted in Zero Dark Thirty. So you use some of those to say you're, you're constantly making judgments and assessments on information and who else knows the information? That's a big part of critical thinking. Where else can I go to get this information? Maybe there's a different witness or informant that has it. And also plausibility. You know, why does this make any sense what this person is, is, is telling you? So I also use real world examples, and I always want to get up in front of these students and say, look, I don't want to pretend, you know, I was some perfect agent out there because I made horrible mistakes in the field. And I'm trying to get you guys to avoid, you know, what I used to call investigative sins, um, going into something with a preconceived notion. Oh, I've seen this a thousand times before. I know how this is going to go. And, you know, and sometimes it doesn't go like that, and it can really slap you in the face at times. Considering only the big things, ignoring the little red warning flags, excuse me, the red warning flags, those types of things to show them how this is not esoteric. This is real world. And with the decision making and problem solving, you know, we had long conversations and case studies. Um, I know you and I were talking offline about the article I wrote, Thinking for Special Agents. I used that case study of Mount Everest. It was really analogous to a lot of things that happen in DEA or other law enforcement where we make poor decisions. You know, you're fatigued you're stressed, there's a lack of time, you have too much information or too little information, personal biases, your personal history, how you're looking at something, all these factors come into playing on whether you're gonna make a good decision or not. Um, The one I was really touching on too a lot with the students was the the unintended consequences. You know, I used to um, watch people do this in the field, and it would drive me crazy, especially if it was my case. And then I would see the same thing occurring at the academy with the new students. We're doing the same type of thing in that, you know, we come in, they kick the door in, we're going through the mock scenario. And then they'd open up the dresser and then they're taking the clothes out and throwing it all over the place and taking paperwork and throwing it all over, all over. And I'd stop the scenario and be, what are you guys doing? You know, I, I totally get that, you know, you have the badge and the gun now and you're, when you do a search warrant, you know, for all intents and purposes, we own that house until we leave that search warrant. But, you know, maybe we wanted to talk to the family member that is sitting you watching you throw their clothing all over the house or their, their paperwork. You know, just because we can do something, should we be doing it? You know, just taking a step back when we have that time to think, when it's not a critical um, life and death scenario and saying, hey, is this a... Is this what we should be doing, or can we take a step back and not do that? Um, one of the other things, in terms of of all these things, I was hitting home with them is uh, the, the constant reinforcement that you know there's going to be you're going to go through these decision making cycles. And you brought up the the OODA loop or the Boyd cycle, which I, I learned in the military, and that one really I think hit home with a lot of the previous military types because we had been trained in that and Uh, For those who don't know, John Boyd was an Air Force pilot in the 50s and then created this feedback loop called the Boyd Cycle. He could defeat anybody in air-to-air combat within 40 seconds. They called him 40-second Boyd. So the observation is just situational awareness in law enforcement. And I gave him a real-world example of how this saved my life, April 14, 1998, 16 months after I left the DEA Academy, about 2 o'clock in the morning on the street in San Juan, where I got jumped by two, four people. One was driving the car, two had pipes and one was coming at me with a knife. And it was real world at that point. And as crucial it was, you know, I got through all this training, you know, quantical like this, the muscle memory. I also told them this muscle memory because I had time to see what was going to transpire. And I went through that whole cycle and I was reacting to what they were doing and they were reacting to what I was doing and, you know, it allowed me to survive the scenario. Um, so that's that's one thing I always was trying to bring home to them why this stuff is so important. Um, and if I can, you know, I I don't like to just use good examples when I've done well up there. I also like to tell the students, you know, here are scenarios where I I made lousy decisions as a DEA agent. Uh, one in particular, I told them on paper, it looks like this fantastic case that I made in 2006. And it was an abject failure, without a doubt, the worst mistake I ever made as a DEA agent. And it was an undercover operation, Christmas time. That's important because, you know, we always do think, uh, we've always done it like this. And we were always in Phoenix, Arizona, we were always using this particular shopping mall that had a ring of restaurants around it. So I was setting up this deal for 10 pounds of methamphetamine. And two targets were supposed to show up and meet the informant and the undercover did not show up to the pre-briefing. So I had $150,000 on the street to do a flash roll. And for those who who aren't familiar with that, you know, that's during a course of a deal where we come in with another undercover and flash the money to show the the targets, Hey, we've got the money for the 10 pounds of methamphetamine. We're good for it. The money leaves and then you won't see it again until you bring all the, all the, the drugs. So that incredibly stressful. I mean, I was already redlining, I had to get the money from the Arizona department of public safety. I had all these people on the scene, 45 minutes, you know, into what was supposed to be the pre brief. I couldn't find the undercover. My boss is calling him. He didn't show up. Finally, after about an hour, he shows up and I'm like, what's going on, man. You're almost an hour late. And he goes, so, and I, I tell you, Jim, it was like two peacocks, like with their chests about the bump. Um, well, you know, all these personal biases coming into play this, this particular individual and I never particularly liked one another. Um, and then we were getting into it. And finally, at some point he throws up his hands and he's like, I'm not doing this today. And I said, you're going to get out there and do your job. And, and then the boss comes in and says, Hey, come on, come on. You know, let's, let's get the deal done. And then we went through and started the deal. And then, you know, I, I at that point I stopped it with the students and I said, does this make any sense? Should I, it was, should I have gone through with this deal or not? Was this particular person in any kind of frame of mind to work undercover? And the answer is absolutely not. Was I in any state of mind to be an effective quarterback that day running this show? No, not at all. We were both upset. We, we, the smart thing would have been to have ended the deal. Well, just like every other drug deal out there seemingly, They always show up with twice the number of people they say they're going to and half the amount of drugs. So instead of two guys, four guys show up in the car and they had less than half of the promised 10 pounds of methamphetamine. So we're going through the thing and then the undercover gives the the signal to make, come in and affect the arrests. Well, at that point, two of the guys stay in the car two flee into the shopping mall. Christmas time. There are four guns in the car. Thankfully, I think they all dropped the guns in the car before they fled. So I told the students, you know, we, we rounded up the, the other two chasing them through the mall. You know, it got written up the next day, you know, on the, the report. And I said, when I came home that night after interviewing everyone and putting them into, you know, checking them into the jail and then writing the criminal complaint, I came home that night and I was shaking. I was like, why did I make that decision to go through with that? You know, I could have gotten somebody killed out there. You know, I, running into a shopping mall at Christmas time potentially aren't. Oh, but we've always done it that way. You know, we're, we're kinetic, we're action-oriented. You know, that, that's in our DNA as law enforcement. We're prone to act. You know, and that, that's why we took the job to a certain degree. But I said, let's step back. You know, on paper, that looked like an amazing case, but I told everybody that was the single worst mistake I ever made in the DEA. And I, I think by bringing examples like that home to the students, that they start to, the wheels are turning and saying, oh yeah, we want to avoid unintended consequences. We want to reduce errors. We want to be able to communicate more effectively. You know, we want to be in this job a long time. We want to be as effective and as safe as possible.
0: Yeah. You know, I totally appreciate what that story. And, you know, our, we talk, we talk about teaching people off the street. You don't know what their background is. They come into an academy, whether it's police or DA or FBI, And um, you don't really know their life experience. And I realized with my criminal justice students at my university that all they know is what they see on TV. And I mean, I, I smiled, almost laughed when you said, you know, in a drug deal, they show up with... Half the product and twice the people. And, you know, that would be an eye opener for students to, to think, oh, wait a minute. This is not like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, <laughs> right? You, everybody's got the briefcase lined with perfectly formed bricks of dope and money, you know, with the still with the bank numbers on them and all that. Uh, I want to talk about uh, addressing or teaching today's student, but I want to get to that in just a second after we thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about Utility and its technology solutions, visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with retired DEA agent and trainer, Daniel Medi. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, reality versus, uh, fantasy in training. And I'm really glad that you talked a, a little bit about, um, you know, giving good and bad examples uh, to new students. Uh, I realize sometimes um, when I say something or I teach a, a lesson, um, they think that's the way it is all the time. And you've just, you know, tempered that with, hey, everything's new. Don't don't say this is, we've always done it this way. Or, oh, this reminds me of exactly the last time we did this. So, you know, there's definitely great um You know, caution in in telling a new student or new agent what they should be looking for. You know, be open to anything. Right. So Mm -hmm. how would you approach today? I know you probably caught the last of the Gen Boomers when you were teaching um, and then you got a little bit into the Millennials. Now we have the Gen Zers who are totally a different animal at learning and uh, their learning methods and styles and their s- smaller windows of, um, you know, operation. Uh, what would be the, the new approach? Are, are you talking to people at the DEA? Are they having difficulty training today's um, uh, candidates? Well, that, that
1: did take place when I, when I was there, we did have a lot of uh, like Generation Z or millennials there. Uh, and I kind of almost use that as a catchphrase for any younger generation. Um, so certainly, but the things I think are really important to them are, you know, show them the relevancy and, and lay out your expectations for them and, and accountability. You know, they, they want to know what's in it for them, but they will be accountable. And you know, it's not like when I was growing up as an exer and my mom said, You're just gonna do it because I'm your mother, and that's that's the way it is, and don't ask me any questions about it. That doesn't work for them. You know, the whole stay in your lane, the go along to get along, the you know, you gotta you have to know your place. This is how we've always done it. Um one thing I like I said, I think they respond as well as any other generation to just laying out expectations. And I I hearken back to John Lejeune, who was my role model of a Marine officer, that was the Marine officer I wanted to be. And Lejeune was a famous World War I Marine general, became the commandant, and he's really responsible for the training at Quantico, how it's set up. And in 1922, General Lejeune put out a letter to his officers, and he called it kindly and just. You know, And I would have the argument all day long with anybody that John Lejeune was far from esoteric and far from a softy. And what he was saying, now is like, look, you know, we have standards and we have to hold them accountable, but we can empower people. That doesn't mean we have to yell and scream at them all the time. That means understanding that when tired Marines are sitting on the ground and he came up to them and they all stood up to salute him, he said, sit down, please. You guys need to rest. That's more important. And he said an inefficient organization is the result or a product of inefficient officers. And I use that same teaching method and gave the field training agents a copy of that letter and said, this is completely similar or equates the DEA. You know, if you have a new probationary agent who's messed up, it's because you're messed up as a training officer. You know, it's this concept of extreme ownership that I really believe in that, you know, instead of looking, hey, let's not blame everybody else. Let's take responsibility. This is my opportunity to guide somebody and I'm responsible for everything they do and don't do. So give an example, I had a, when I was in Quantico, I was for basic age in class 199, uh, started in 2014, a lot of younger individuals in the class, a lot of different backgrounds, like you mentioned. And I was not only one of their principal instructors, but I was their coordinator. So I, during the 17 weeks there, I was responsible for all the logistics, everything to guide them through everything they did and didn't do at the academy, basically. And the first day I met them, I had a speech and I got up there and talked about, you know, your center, my center of gravity is your success here. That's what I want. But you will be held accountable. I'm not a yeller and screamer, but, you know, if you step out of line, if you do something that's foolish, you know, be prepared for the consequences. And along those same lines, I told them, it's also important for you in terms of accountability to step up and ask for help. You know, i a big believer in that asking for help is a sign of strength and not weakness. And I, you know, I, I went back to what I was talking about earlier that, you know, they might get through the academy fine, but not really understand something. So I, I want them to get out there. It's this teach-coach-mentor relationship. Um, my favorite quote from, if I can get into this with John LeJu, excuse me, is he said the relationship between officers should in no sense be that of superior and inferior, nor that of master and servant. It should be that of teacher and scholar. In fact, it should partake of the nature of the relationship between father and son, in that he was saying, uh, an officer, especially a commanding officer, is responsible for the physical, the mental, the moral welfare, and the discipline and military training of the young men under their command. And I told that to the field training agents. I said, that's no different than you can substitute officers for DEA agents, you can, you know, the Marines are men, you can substitute male or or woman. You know, it's, it's all the same thing. It's all leadership. It's all taking responsibility. Uh, And the students, I told them, you know, right next door when I was teaching a field training agent class, I had a group of trainees going through also. And I was linking them up at night during a social event. So they got to know each other and they would have a name to a face when this new agent showed up to the field. And I said, one of you, you know, I, I make fun of millennials as much as anybody else. You know, I've had my share of fun at their expense. But I also said, you know, they're the generation who's born the brunt of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in fact, in that classroom next door to you guys, one of you is going to have a young naval officer who won the Navy Cross, you know, the second highest award for valor behind the Medal of Honor. I said, he is as humble, respectful, engaged and wanting to learn is anybody from any generation so i you know i i think it's you know sometimes i think these tags get put on everybody i was an xer there are a lot of entitled and lazy people in that generation too so i always wanted to treat them as individuals and say you know give them the benefit of the doubt until they show you something different and i really don't think it's it's being soft on them i we had these discussions at the academy and there was a, like I said, the faction wanted to be paramilitary. And then I was part of the other group that said, no, let's do teach coach mentor. And I know in Washington state, they've got, I've done research on that uh, where they were getting trainees away from being in the brace position. Like I'm talking about if you're in the hallway and an instructor walks by, they brace themselves with the position of attention and say, yes, sir. No, sir. Stand up when the instructor comes in the room and they were trying to get away from that. And have the students engage in conversation because that's what we have, we have to get the younger generation off the phones because law enforcement is all about communication, person-to-person communication, knowing how to interact with people. And I said, those, those are the things that we really have to make strides with. It's, you know, it's one thing we can, I can tell somebody, you, know, you have to stand up in class you know, and show discipline while you're here. But to me, the only discipline that counts is self-discipline. You know, we're going to expect these young ladies and men, when they leave an academy, to go out and make independent decisions. You know, I understand that these are hierarchical organizations, and there's a pecking order, and there's a command structure, and a chain of command, and that's important. But, you know, we're also, new law enforcement officer, a cop on a beat, is often out there by himself or, or herself. And now we're saying, okay, well, here you are, go make an independent decision on your own. And I think we've got to start with that teach, coach, mentor mindset and just letting the, the new generation know, hey, I know you guys have, you know, your, you have your opinions and I, I think it's a great thing that they have different ways of doing things. And I, I don't feel challenged by it. I, that makes, it always made me raise my game. You know, they, they challenged me to be better, to be a better instructor and a better agent. I was just telling them, you know, you just have to be a tactful agent of change.
0: Yeah, totally. And I understand what you're saying about, um, you know, the challenging and we've talked about it in other segments that it seems like with the, the generation Z it's, it comes from a place of curiosity rather than a challenge You know, that we think of like they're challenging our knowledge or our integrity, but what they really, they come from a place of why and how does this work and, and what's behind it. And I think, I think that's healthy for both student and instructor Hey, I want to shift gears a little bit and um, talk a a little bit about the war on drugs. Um, President Nixon, 1970, actually declared a war on drugs. You know, I I asked my students about that. What does that mean? Um, The war on drugs has taken a beating in the court of public opinion over the last few years. But, you know, look what's happening over the last five. We've had these record numbers of increasing overdose deaths. And um, in some states like my my home state, California, the lack of prosecution just keeps drug dealers and users back on the street. And it is this awful cycle. And um, we still have the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. What is the role of the DEA today? And uh, what are they doing um, to to keep up with this international import export uh, mm-hmm. drugs on the street or, you know, are, are you introducing more technology? Uh, what's it like in the, in the recruiting side? How's the DEA doing today? And what's, what's the role in the mission?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to presume to know exactly what they're, you know, everything that they're doing today in terms of recruitment, et cetera. Um, because I've, I've retired a few years ago, but um, you know, the mission of the, I taught the mission history of DEA. It's always been, I, I think, to a large degree, it always will be, you know, to identify, target, and disrupt, dismantle the most significant drug trafficking organizations that are out there and the members of those organizations that are breaking our controlled substances laws. And we have to do that, regardless of not if the cases are being prosecuted or not. That that part's out of our hands. A, I'm glad you brought up about, you know, the things that are continuing on today. Uh, I live in this beautiful enclave my wife and I in a small, just outside a small town in Western North Carolina. And this County, I live in what's called Transylvania County is the third poorest in North Carolina, ravaged by prescription drug abuse, um, heroin synthetics, including fentanyl. And most of the crime that I I read every day is taking place because because of drug issues. I, I know one thing that was a focus for DEA when I was there and, and still is, and I'm, my discussions with close friends that are still there, is this the diversion aspect of all this. You know, we all know about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma. That's been in the in the news a lot, and how that just ravaged our communities and, and the continuing harm. You know, there've been some reports: hundred thousand people are dead every, every year because of you know prescription pills leading to fentanyl. And, and synthetics, and, and then leading to heroin overdoses. Um, one thing I really loved that when Mr. Rosenberg did, besides the core values, he wanted a 360 approach. You know, he came in and said, "Hey, this is going to be a focus. This diversion. You know, law enforcement and interdiction and making arrests is part of the puzzle, but it's not the entire puzzle. It's also, are we going to, are we going to have in community outreach? Are we going to have education?" You know, to to do those, these are like a three pronged approach. All these are small parts of the puzzle that we have to do. Um, You know, one thing I you you mentioned a war on drugs because I used to teach this at the academy in terms of how Nixon created DEA in 1973 in large part because of the problems that were revolving around the Vietnam War. Um, But I, you know, this whole the war on drugs. I've you know people that are still working in DEA we talk about we're like. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's the right, you know, term maybe sometimes, like I'm, I'm talking about, there are many different pieces of the puzzle to, to help people get off drugs. Unfortunately, as long as people are going to want it, the traffickers are going to get the stuff to them. And that, that's the sad reality. You know, we've been fighting this war for 50 years. So, you know, Sir Robert Peel came up with this thing in the 1820s, uh, his policies on policing or practices for the police. And he was considered the father of modern policing. And, You know, he was really saying, look, the police are the people and the people are the police. And if you I used to study those, what he was talking about, and there were eight or nine tenants that he had and basically boiled down to gaining public trust. And sometimes today I see, you know, part of the issue, I think some of the the breach that we have today in trust between the community we serve and law enforcement is if you show a layman a picture today of somebody in law enforcement here and a picture of somebody in the military, they probably the layman would probably be hard pressed to differentiate between the two. Um, and I, I totally get that. It, it's super dangerous. And you have to have the right gear and weapons along those lines. But I, I think that's created some issues in terms of, you know, our guardian roleship, you know, and this is going back to what I was talking about with that search warrant example, you know, just because we can do something, should we do it that way? Um, and I just think that we have to be, you know, realize that the military, I was in the military, the mission of the Marine Corps is to uh, locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver or fire and close combat. You know, that doesn't completely jive with what law enforcement protect and serve. Sure, there's some overlapping elements, but again, my large point is that understanding that we need the public trust to do it to go in there and continue to do this incredibly difficult and incredibly important mission.
0: Hey, so uh, I need to wrap up. I'm, I'm being mindful of your time. I I really want to thank you for being on the show. I want to thank you for your military service as well as your time with the DEA. Um, What are you up to these days, Dan? How can our readers learn more from you and uh, tell us a little bit before that, before we wrap it up about moral courage and We've seen some incidents over the last year or so where, uh, especially post incident, of course, uh, leadership is being challenged at the scene. What do you tell students about uh, moral courage and leadership? And uh, I think at some point we need to talk about poor leadership at scenes where there really are life and death situations going on. Um, People are dying. How can um, somebody in a role less than the incident commander uh, appropriately questioned the leadership or the tactics at the time uh, to do something different. Um, you know, yeah, it's, in it's the brutal. face of in the face yeah. of sanctions, discipline, or even being fired or prosecuted uh, post incident.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple really real world examples to bring up, and um, one of them I never brought up with the students, uh, but when I did, or did later on with, with somebody else. Um, these are discussions I had all the time with the new agents. And I also did it with the law enforcement explorers, as you're probably familiar with, uh, exploring programs around the country, young people 14 to 21 years old. They, they get involved with local they're interested in a career in law enforcement and they go through some training and do ride-alongs. And, but at Quantico, I led a law enforcement leadership leadership academy. And the whole week was to teach them about things about why it is important to think for yourself and to display moral courage. And we, we talked a lot about the DNA of law enforcement, not just DEA as I did with the, the trainees in Quantico. And I said, you know, sometimes physical danger, um, you know, sometimes we're just reacting, you know, we've been on the range a thousand times like this, taking the gun out of our holster And reacting as i did during my deadly force encounter and it just happened to be you know the guns and i'm sorry the knife and club was real that time but you know moral courage can be a lot tougher because there are consequences like you mentioned and there's there's time to think about it um and like you said there we discussed all these aspects of you know i had to learn a hard lesson as a marine officer about it's better to be respected than to be liked and, you know, I told him, you're going to be dealing with stuff like that. you you know, you've taken this job, you moved your family across the country, you know, you've made a huge commitment and you want to fit in, right? You want to get promoted. You want to, you want to be able to have nice overseas assignments or local officers want to become detectives or get onto a SWAT team um, type of scenario. So there are consequences to standing up and can be incredibly difficult. I, you know, I like to bring one up in terms of, I think today in terms of technology, I would love to see more virtual reality in terms of moral courage, those circumstances when somebody is going to be on the, the horns of a dilemma, as I like to call it, in particular with, you know, the power dynamics, when it's not just one of your peers, but one of your field training agents or another supervisor. Uh, I'm familiar with, you know, I've seen some of the training at Georgetown Law does in terms of active bystandership. You know, teaching officers today that it's crucial that you you have to step in and do something, and you know, I what I saw happen with two to three officers that were on the scene with Derek Chauvin really hit home with me. Uh, I went through something not to that degree, but something somewhat similar. My first week out of the Border Patrol Academy, you know, one of those officers on the scene with Chauvin was on his third shift, and the other was on his fourth shift. You know, and I came out of the Border Patrol Academy got to San Diego. We're with our field training agents. The middle of the night, Dairy Mart Road on the border in San Diego. We arrested a group of people coming across illegally, had them sat on the ground. There were probably eight or ten trainees of us, probably 20, 20 of the persons we arrested, and two field training agents. Um, and one of the people who was arrested sitting on the ground was mouthing off. And unfortunately, one of my field training agents went over and, and struck this person in the midsection. And it was like I can still feel today, like the air coming out of my stomach. And we're all looking around like, oh my God, what do what do we do? You know, what what are we supposed to do here? Um, and I, I'll tell you frankly, we were a physically afraid of of this person, this training agent. He was a fierce person and angry. Um, and there are our other field training agent was was outstanding. You know, I, I did earlier with the arrows going this way. And the one who was a, a real good role model later on, he saw how upset we were. And he's like, look, look, guys, this is 1994. He said, understand that, you know, that's not the way to do things. You know, don't do things like that. And I, that's why I'm talking about these putting people in through virtual reality um, when I went through the Border Patrol Academy and the DEA Academy, we had these scenario, these video game interactions where you put on the headset, you had the fake gun and you know, the ominous voice comes on you and your partner are, you know, walking down a dark alley at 3am, be prepared to react. And the scenario invariably led to somebody jumping out with a knife or a gun, et cetera. And you'd shoot the screen and then you had to articulate why you conducted deadly force. So I would like to see more of those types of things for realistic scenarios. You know, when the public is showing up and yelling and screaming at you in your face, putting up a cell phone camera. And you have to start talking about these things because I truly don't believe that your body is gonna go where your brain hasn't gone already. You know, even in one time, if you've gone through a one-time cycle, hey, if something like this happens, I can I can react and maybe I'll step in and say, hey man, that, you know, knock it off. You know, I, I got this, take a break or something along those lines. But in particular, when it's somebody who's got that position of power over you, it's so difficult to do it. And I, you know, I used to tell the, um, you know, I've talked to some law enforcement officers that, you know, I'm not worried about you guys going out and doing something that's going to be caught on film and go viral. But what, what are you going to do if you're in a scenario that, you know, those two officers that are on the scene with Derek Chauvin, Three and four shifts into their careers. So, I, the real crucial key, I think, too, is for people to have at least one example of moral courage and, and trust that the, that their leadership is going to do something about it. And to me, it was a real, real stain on me that I did not stand up that day in 1994. You know, I, I went home and I'm like, you know, a week earlier, I graduated as the honor graduate of board, or Border Patrol Class 270. And I came home, I'm like, I don't have, where's my integrity? Where, where's my honor? You know, I, I didn't step up and say anything. You know, we had oral boards in the Border Patrol post-academy that if they didn't like you, they were going to get rid of you, even though you graduated the academy. All these things go into play. Um, but then in 2015, July 2015, I, I had the opportunity to stand up at the DEA Academy and make a stand. Um, We had, there was an investigation there, there was a toxic environment of bullying by some high ranking officers and just a toxic leadership environment. And Chuck Rosenberg, the administrator at the time, you know, was going around these different DEA divisions talking to our new agents, or talking not only new agents, but also to experienced agents to say, hey, what's going on, what are your concerns? And he came in and talked to us at Quantico Training there were roughly 300 people in the room. And I had, I found out that the day before he was coming and I wrote a four page letter to Mr. Rosenberg. And I, and I I wanted to bring up, you know, the things that were going on and I'm looking around the room when he asked any, if anybody had any questions and I said, Hey, Dan, you didn't stand up in 94. You know, if you don't, if you don't stand up now, I don't see anybody else around here. That's, that's going to be standing up. And, I, I trusted Mr. Rosenberg for me to get up as my knees were shaking and to address him with, with this. Uh, but I also had the example of my dad, who was a deputy inspector when he retired from the NYPD. Um, and, and he started with transit. But my dad, my dad was on a rocket ride to the top. He's what I call a blue flamer. He was going to the chief levels. He was the head of the academy for a while. He was the chief of detectives in Brooklyn. And my dad cut his advancement short because he had moral courage. Something was going on, and he called out a high-ranking member of the department on it and basically knew that, hey, you know, I'm going to retire as a deputy inspector, and that's okay. So I was thinking about my dad and his example. when I just about did not stand up that day uh, in front of Mr. Rosenberg and 300 people. And I, I laid out to him, and I said, you know, you've heard about the toxic environment here you know, you've talked about kindness and civility that you want all your agents to show respect. I said, hey, we're the everyday leaders here. You know, we're not positional leaders. I wasn't, I didn't have a positional leadership on my collar, but every day, you know, we came into that academy. Those new students were looking at us like, you're you're the face of the DEA. Are you authentic? Do Do you care about me as a new agent? You know, or are you just somebody who's saying that, yeah, we care about your about you. But, you know, your your deeds are going to show that. And I said, you know, leadership is, is staying left to bang. It's, uh, which is one of my favorite books, I think, aspiring um, law, law enforcement people should read that. Um, it's not, it's preventing problems. It's staying ahead of things. It's not saying, you know, hoping that nothing's going to happen, putting your head in the sand, and then when something bad happens, trying to cover it up, or trying to, you know, make excuses for criminal behavior. And I, I, and you could imagine as I was standing in front of 300 people and basically calling out some high-ranking members of the, of the uh, DEA training division, you know, the daggers I was being thrown, and there were, you could hear a pin drop in that room. But I said, you know, we, somebody's got to stand up and say this stuff. Um, and I said, I don't despise, leader, you know, the authority. I, I'm craving it. I'm, I'm desperate for it. You know that we all want that. Even people who are seemingly burned out and are so cynical and critical—they're the ones who care the most about it. So after that was said, you know, I went. The meeting was over. I went back to my desk. You can imagine I'm slumped in my chair like a wet noodle, and I'm like, "I'm 79 weeks from retirement. There goes my pension, right?" And I start thinking, "Oh man, you know." There, there, it all goes. I just threw it all away, and I, I had people coming up to me, people I hadn't met at the academy, saying, "You got up and said everything that we've been wanting to say. Thank you." The next day, a Saturday, I got a call at home from Chuck Rosenberg. Uh, I couldn't believe. It. Um, and you know, you talk about knowing the environment that you're operating in as teaching students that understanding that. You know, I knew his son was going through Marine officer training himself. So he would relate to a lot of things I was talking about in the letter and and in public in front of everybody. Um, And he took it to heart and he made changes. Um, And leadership makes such a difference. brought in Greg Chirundolo to be the special agent in charge. I'd run through a wall for that man. It was a completely different mindset. And that's why I'm, I'm, you're asking what I'm doing now. I've I've started one of my uh, last supervisors in DEA, Brian Townsend has just retired. Um, and we're hoping to go out and talk about all these things, about emerging leadership, about the importance of, of thinking, about teaching law enforcement or who it's applicable to business, nonprofits, it doesn't matter. It's all about developing thinking, muscle, memory to reduce your errors and to make better decisions. And I um, you know, I, I've had these opportunities to get into this contract and I, I hadn't wanted to do it, but I, I really feel this is this is an inflection point. This is a time where there's public trust that's been lost and I want to be part of the the solution for this. And Brian was one of those leaders. And I hate to call him a supervisor or manager because that's somebody who's task-oriented. Brian was a guy who understood that, you know, leadership is not about lighting a fire under somebody. It's lighting a fire within them. So I I think that's, these are important issues. And this is a noble profession. I mean, my dad was, his moral compass pointed to true north. He saw this as a noble profession. I followed him into it. And I, I, I think that things, you know, that have happened in the last few years, it's never, ever going to be the same. You know, we need to really have, you know, especially people who are retired to get out there and say, look, you know, we've done it. We've walked the walk, you know, we, we can help you guys. You know, we've all made mistakes like I talked about, but, you know, I think all these things we talked about today are, are part of the solution to help get back to what Peel was talking about, that the police are the people and the people are the police. So I, um, if I may, as part of that, um, Brian started this Eagle Six Training. Um, you can either reach out to me at dcdan.mady, M-E-H-D-I, at gmail.com, or And the Eagle Six Training is all one word, and six is the number six.
0: Hey, thanks so much, Dan. Again, thanks for your, your military uh, leadership and service and with the DEA. And yeah, you're right. We are an untapped resource in, in a lot of areas of training. Why not learn from our experiences and our mistakes as well as our successes? Hey, thanks so much. Uh, Stay well. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Jim. I really
1: appreciate the opportunity and thank you for what you're doing.
0: All right. Hey, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed Dan Metty and his, uh, Stories in the DEA, in training, in his military experience as well. Uh, let us know who you want to hear from and what you want to hear about. Drop me a line at PolicingMatters at PoliceOne.com. PolicingMatters at police1.com. We will definitely get back to you and appreciate your input. Hey, stay safe out there and hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care. I'm Jim Dudley.